Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Great news yesterday regarding the Supreme Court agreeing to hear the case about abortion, chemical abortion. Yet again, we're seeing just within two years, two major cases on abortion coming before the Supreme Court. And this one has to do with the majority of abortions occurring today. That is through chemical abortion, also referred to as, quote, medical abortion. It's a two-part pill process, how the chemical abortion goes. I'll explain a little later on. I'll share with you some of the expectations of the court case uh, coming in the spring and late spring next year. Uh, Some of the talking points from Planned Parenthood and their commentary on the case, along with setting the record straight for what is really being addressed behind this chemical abortion pill case. It's really important. Also, California is a no-kill state. Did you know that? I'll share with you a little bit about that here on Trending in just a little bit. Joining me today on Trending is Devin Shod. He's the founder of the Fathers of St. Joseph. He's also an author. You can find him and his books at fathersofstjoseph.org. And we love to dive into the topics of femininity and masculinity and what's happening in the culture today. And Devin, you and I were talking earlier about this tug and pull in the culture surrounding quote, patriarchy. There's a lot of debate over patriarchy today, Devin. It's a rather uncomfortable topic for many people. I was enamored a few handful of years ago when the very first women's march occurred. I went to one of the largest women's marches and I remember going and just interviewing people and I would ask them, why were they at the Women's March? And they'd have all these reasons. And they'd throw over and over again different words out, like misogyny, patriarchy. And I finally turned it on them. And every single person who mentioned patriarchy, I said, can you define for me what patriarchy is? Like, what is patriarchy and why is it problematic? Not a single person could define what patriarchy was, which it's a really simple answer. Patriarchy is where the father of the home, the husband of the home, leads the family, is the leader of the family, takes on the responsibility for the family. And this is what's at the heart of part of the crisis in our culture today is this tug and pull over leadership. And so two questions we're going to dive into. Why do men struggle to lead the family? And do women actually want men to lead within the context of the family? Joining me now is Devin Schaaf from the Fathers of St. Joseph. Devin, what do you think about this topic? Why is it that men fathers in our culture today struggle so significantly to be the leaders of their family? Is it they're being undermined? Is it that they don't want the responsibility? Or is it something completely different? Well, yeah, I mean, it could be those things. I I think it just reminds me of Jesus's parable about the seed and the sower. And, you know, the seed is so small. There's, it, it almost seems insignificant. But if it does 
bear fruit, if it does grow, it's going to become a bush or a tree in which the birds dwell. But if you look at those four stages or three stages that Jesus lays out, he says that the seed falls on the wayside, the birds take it away. And I think that's our first indicator. Men don't want to lead because they're ignorant. That no one has taught them. We have a lost vision of fatherhood, a famine of fatherhood, or a famine of headship. And therefore, men don't actually understand or know that that's their noble calling. So that's the seed on the wayside. And that would be, Jesus says, the devil, you know, like symbolized by the birds of the air that take away that seed of truth. And then you have the seed that falls on the rocky ground. It begins to spring up. and But then it's the heat scorch so that he says that that's persecutions or sufferings. And I think that when men get into the call to lead, at least in marriage and family, they sense a lack of significance. A part of them actually has to die. This happened to me. And it was very difficult because I, it, I call the pride detox because you're. Li- I was living for the world and the world's maxims. I was trying to do what the world told me to do to that would bring me happiness. And when I discovered Christ in his way, there was this point where I had to make a decision between, okay, the world is telling me I can have significance this way, and Christ is saying this way. But in that tension between the already and not yet, the already of trying to experience the world and not yet of experiencing Christ and his grace and redemption in my vocation, there's massive persecution or suffering, a personal persecution. And I think a lot of guys, they they look at that and they say, man, there's not a lot of significance there on the home front. That's not going to really fulfill me. And so that seed is scorched. And then I think the seed that starts to really spring up, it looks like it's going to bear fruit, but then it's choked out. That's really where the father or the man of the house, the, the husband, he's taking his vocation pretty seriously. He's understanding the call. He's starting to live it. But then fear and loss set in. And what I mean by that is he's discouraged by the lack of results, maybe in him and his children and his wife. Maybe he's defeated by his wife and his children when they're disappointed in him. And it's like a mirror. He looks at them and he sees his own failure, you know, or maybe it's the doubts when he sees comrades and friends and people at church and he compares and that comparison leads to despair. So I think that that third group, there's a lot of pressure. And that pressure a lot of times turns us to look to work or games, something that can be completed, achieved, and finished. Because men are doers, they love to close the circuit, you know? But relationships are are not a closed circuit. They're open. And it's like, so a work project or a game or 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 a hobby, there is an end to it. It's like running a sprint and we can feel good about ourselves and we finished it. But relationships are a marathon that go all the way to the day we die. And so relationships are the hardest thing that we will ever do on this earth. And it's particularly hard, I think, for men. So that's kind of my my snapshot. But there's one thing. If that seed, and this is the fourth one, if that seed, as Jesus says, dies to itself. In John 20, 12, 24, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. So we, this, is, this is the options. If we don't die to ourselves for the relationships, for our family, for our wives, for our children that we have responsibility for, we will end up being alone. However, if we do die to ourselves, then we rise to new life. And that's, that's fatherhood. From the ashes of our identity, trying to figure it out in this culture, 
we embrace our sonship. And we then we have this incredible relationship with our wife, with our children, and then we end up growing into our identity as husbands in the image of Christ, fathers in the image of God the Father, sons in the image of the Son of God. So that touches on what you believe neo-leadership in the home looks like. And if you're just joining us, that's Devin Shad from the Fathers of St. Joseph. Diving into this topic of patriarchy and why men struggle to lead the family. So you're touching on a lot of men just don't want to lead because they don't get it. They don't know why it's important. They never had the model. Um, they don't lead because they don't think it'll bear fruit. They don't think it'll be effective. Again, maybe it was never modeled. Maybe it hasn't been effective. Or they tried to and there's discouragement. There's a good comparison. There's There are rifts within the family. But when we get to it, I think part of the question is, part of the question is, what does that look like? Like, what would you consider male leadership in the home to look like? Okay. Well, we were talking about earlier what it doesn't look like. And I think that that's a good place to start. Um, On one end, you know, we have domination and control. You know, so domination, the domineering tyrant, you know, the the man who expects everybody to serve him. And if they don't, he's going to let everybody know. So he's kind of like an adult spoiled brat. You know, he's like mm-hmm. a bully. And then you've got on the other end, on the other side of the behavioral spectrum, you've got the deficiency where it's abdication. He just neglects his role because he really doesn't want to have any discomfort in his relationships with his children, with his wife. He just okay, let everybody do what they're going to do. It'll all play out in the end. It'll be okay. You know, it'll take care of itself, which it doesn't. And we're seeing that in our culture right now. It just doesn't. And so the golden mean in the middle, I think, between domination and trying to control people and, and you know, using them for your own benefit. And on the other end, neglecting your role and just sitting back and having, you know, letting everybody just do whatever they're going to do. The middle is this difficult position. And it's very tense where it's sacrificial responsibility to set the pace of self-giving love. And we see this exemplified beautifully, and I think in a noble way, in St. Joseph. And we could talk about that more, but also in Jesus Christ. And I think that like father, like son, you know, um, you know, Jesus learned from Joseph, you know, basically what he lived and, and Jesus taught what he saw in Joseph as well. So I think like father, like son, we see this, these two men who set the pace of self-giving love, and we can talk about what that really looks like. But that to me is the golden mean. That is the, the key secret sauce to being a great leader, especially in the family. When I think about it, Devin, too, like you talk about the sacrificial dimension of leadership, like leadership isn't meant to be like, hey, woo, look at me, I'm the head of the pack. It's meant to be a leadership and service by example, by by actually living it out. And I just think about basic male female differences and the male body is built with strong shoulders, broad shoulders to endure, to carry a load. And men within the context of relationships, within the context of the family, marriage, men are meant to carry the load to make sure that the wife, the children are not overburdened, both physically in terms of what they can carry, but also spiritually, materially, emotionally, what they can bear for the family. And I think that's a really great guiding principle of like that sacrificial caring because men, although men can implode with stress, men with a healthy type of responsibility, with a healthy type of leadership can also thrive and it can inspire them to do great things. 
No, absolutely. Yeah, I I love the uh, broad shoulder analogy. I wish I had broad shoulders. That would be great, but maybe spiritually. But yeah, I love that analogy because, you know, it just speaks to what we are as men. I, you know, it just reminds me of Lord of the Rings, you know, Sam, when he's carrying Frodo up Mount Doom, you know, I mean, obviously we're talking about friendship there, but that's kind of the idea is that when someone can't be can't go themselves the father and the husband he carries them for them and i just think that saint paul says this he says bear one another's burdens as your own and and he also says count another as better than yourself and i think that this is at the heart of being a husband and a heart of being a great spiritual leader the great leader he looks not, you know, JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I think it's ask not what your family can do for you, but what you can do for your family. Ask not what your wife can do for you, but what you can do for your wife. And, and in this, we count her as better than ourselves. We bear her burdens as our own. And the key here is this. It's not, this isn't just like self-defeated gospel. When a man does this, he ends up growing into himself. He ends up achieving more and being more like you were just saying. And, and I could tell you so many men's uh, friends of mine, comrades, people I know, their story fits to this perfectly. They're bachelors, they're partying, they're squandering their life. They meet a woman, they fall in love with her. And then it's go time. They have to get a job. Maybe they need more education. And maybe they are working two jobs and suddenly a new talent is found or an old one is re rejuvenated and resurrected. And these guys just take it to the next level. And then pretty soon off that is a whole nother endeavor. Like one of the guys I know, he was like a mortgage guy. And then wouldn't you know it, he, he fixed up his house for his wife, bought a, bought a small little house. And then out of that, he developed a contracting business and literally is building huge, um, huge buildings, which he's selling. I mean, it's amazing. So that happens all the time when a guy steps into his role. And I think there's grace builds upon nature. So at the natural level, a man is learning responsibility for himself and others. He's learning to bear that burden, as you're saying, but then God steps in and God graces that nature to take it to a whole new level. God provides for the man who's trying to provide. And this is the beautiful thing about Jesus and about God. God will never be outdone in generosity. It's a divine principle. And so if I give to God by serving my family and sacrificing for my family, God, and it's, this isn't why we do it, but God is not going to be outdone in generosity. He has already sacrificed for us, but he's going to continue out of that sacrifice on Calvary and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. He's going to continue to bless us with gifts, yes, temporal and spiritual. And the spiritual gifts, especially for our wives and children, as distributors of God's manifold grace, these are the most important. And I love where you mentioned the spiritual dimension of leadership, because at the core, leadership is not just materially, it's not just physically how you lead, but it's spiritually how you lead with your life by the way you lead your family. Everything that is, we are body and soul, and everything that we speak of materially is also a conversation, conversation that must ultimately flow in its perfection into the spiritual dimension of who we are called to be as 
created embodied souls. I think that's so fundamental, this conversation. So I think this just is a tip of the iceberg in diving into why is it that men struggle to lead the family? There are many, I think, elements to, to this from a family of origin, to lack of example, to uncomfortability after one's had one has tried to lead. So I think a lot of food for thought here. That's Devin Shot from the Fathers of St. Joseph. You can find him at fathersofstjoseph.org. I want to flip the table on this conversation. We're going to come back in just a moment, diving into whether or not women actually want men to lead in the relationships and kind of some of the response we're seeing in the culture right now to this idea of men leading within the home and that male-female dynamic. want men to lead within relationships? I think this is a great question because I hear from a lot of women who say, I want to wear the pants in the relationship, I wear the pants in the relationship, or the pants were abdicated to me, therefore I'm the one wearing the pants in the relationship. This is a sensitive topic and we have a lot of crush the patriarchy conversation in our culture today, but at the end of the day, I am intrigued by studies that point to the healthiest families, healthiest outcome for children are intact families where mom and dad are there. Mom and dad are filling traditional roles within the home where the children are in a loving environment, where children have the thriving fundamental years of quality time mom home with them during those key developmental years. There are a number of psychologists really being forthcoming and honest about the topic of childhood development. One of them includes Erica Komazar, who also worked as a social worker. She's been a guest here on Trending, and she published a book, and she is a feminist herself. Um, she posted a book, published a book, I think it was in 2017, and it was titled Being There, Why the First Three Years Matter. And she has other subsequent sequential books that talk about the later years as well, but just talking about how important those fundamental years are for developing the brain, for developing a child's emotional stability. That said, it comes back to this whole topic of do women actually want men to lead, to protect, to provide, to be that patriarch within the home? And what's fascinating is the Catholic Church's teaching actually really does hold to the traditional view of the family. You get married, then you have the babies, then you have the father supporting the family so that the mother is free to care for the child. What does the church teach? You look at teaching documents and encyclicals from the church, such as Cassie Canubi, that was that is very clear that the husband is the head of the home and has a chief place in leading, and the woman is the heart of the home who has a chief place in loving. This is the church teaching. So if you're a little offended, I get it. It's hard. It's hard to implement this within our homes. It's hard to see even models of this. And it's hard to try and figure out how to model this in the midst of our fallen nature. But I think the question of the hour and joining me now to discuss this is Devin Shad from the Fathers of St. Joseph. And the question is, do women actually want men to lead? And I think when we start this conversation, there was a study that came out right around 2019. And it had, it was international research. And I don't have the study right in front of me at the moment, but I was just thinking about it. And it basically showed that women want men 
even should I say women who hold to high levels of view surrounding radical feminism, equality, et cetera, that they want men who to be benevolent sexes. In other words, even though they want equality, which I'm all about equality, but that doesn't mean sameness, um, they still wanted men who were going to put them up on a pedestal, who were going to treat them differently. Uh, they wanted men who were going to uphold, truly uphold the value of a woman as a woman and not as a man. That a man is still tr- striving to be the primary provider of the family. The man is striving to be able to protect the family. There's a lot of conversation in the culture today about discomfort among women, knowing that the man they are dating, or maybe even the man they're married to, couldn't take a hit to protect them. And this is, I think, a startling and staggering conversation, and one in which we need to build up confidence in people when it comes to this entire, I think, issue of the family, of being able to have this confidence in leadership. So I think at the end of the day, the studies are pointing to the fact that, yes, women want men who can lead and treat them differently. But the problem is, is that it's not been modeled in our culture. The challenge is, is that men are not experiencing this. And Devin Shad's with me from the Fathers of St. Joseph. Devin, I've been just diving into this topic of whether or not women actually want men to lead. And can you speak to maybe some of the tension you've seen in relationships when there's that desire or lack of desire to lead and how it can be a tug and pull between the spouses when we're not having that proper order as I've laid out that the church is calling us to within marriage and leadership. Yeah, I think that, so on one hand, we have men who have not been taught to step up. And I I don't want to be, I don't know, critical of leadership, but men aren't really, they are now more and more, but for many years, we weren't being called out. And then I think that because of that, women felt the need, especially spiritually speaking, to really step into that role. And however, in that process of stepping into that role, which I, I understand they needed to, but then they would almost like shame the husband or shame the father. And I know, have several acquaintances and friends who, because of that shame, they just either left the church, stopped praying, forget about it. They're not going to be involved anymore. And so there's this back and forth of where both people feel like, I don't understand what to do. Uh, than the other person, I'm going to do it. And then there, it exacerbates the, the process here. So I think really, uh, fundamentally, I've heard so many times women who are Christian, who are Catholic, desperately wanting their husband to step up and lead, desperately wanting mm-hmm. to lead the family, desperately wanting to be that spiritual leader in the family. So I think that on one hand, women do want men to lead, but I think that on the other hand, they're kind of jaded by men not leading and so like hey we're just going to do it ourselves and we see this in the secular world big time i agree and i think there's a jaded dimension and there's also also a dimension i hate to throw it out there uh, but it is a real dimension of the prevalence of (laughs) abuse especially sexual abuse within our culture it is so Mm. prevalent and shockingly Mm. so that i think there's a lot of distrust 
of men, whether it be from abandonment to physical abuse to sexual abuse. It is that, like, I don't trust you. Of course I want to wear the pants. Of course I'm going to step into those roles because it really is for a lot of people psychologically a fight or flight mode type of response. And they're fighting and they're in that survival mode. And I find that many women are in that place today where the, even, even the idea of being led or even a man being present to, to be there, to be trustworthy. I think trust is a really big part of this conversation that women don't have men they trust where they, they can rely on them. They can, they can have that freedom of dependence there. Yeah. Trust is everything. It's the foundation of the relationship and it sets the trajectory of the relationship because if a woman cannot trust a man or vice versa, what is going to happen, there is not going to be that openness. There is not going to be that sharing. And there's not going to be that, especially on the wife's part, there is not going to be the placement of her soul in her husband's hands. And that's what we're really talking about with male headship. Mm. He, his duty, his duty is to carve the path through the thicket, through the brambles, through the thorns, carve that path for his wife and his family to get to the celestial city, to heaven. And if she doesn't trust him, she's going to carve that. She's going to try to carve that path herself. And, um, and that's just not the way God designed it. So I think you're right. The whole sexual abuse thing, and we could get into all sorts of stuff with that, because I think that sexual tensions are like running very high. I, I, you know, like I'm, they always are, but especially in the sixties, but I think, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like now though, it's like talking about, (laughs) (laughs) well, I just think that, so you've got on one hand, let, let's just talk about the Catholic perspective, like or like the high-end Catholic perspective where you have got conservative guys who are really trying to lead their families, but their wives um, maybe aren't participating in the sexual union as much as they want, right? Now, this creates a huge friction because on one hand, a man might think that he's do that justly, you know, and they quote Aquinas and, you know, they quote Ephesians five and all this stuff. And there is some truth to that, but the justice demands also that he is sacrificing for her and that he is actually laying down his life in many ways, including, including at times sexual intercourse and sexual desire. But I think that's where the abuse can come in. Not even if it's, physical sexual abuse but it's more like a mental abuse where the guy nags Mm. and he shames and he guilts and and i think that that's that's a death play for everyone involved because he want he he is wanting to get something out of this relationship and it could be good it could be proper but he's going about the wrong way and what that does is that that totally cuts the legs out underneath trust she she's like he's only in it for one thing not for me and so she may even surrender that to him, but she will not trust him and love him. And so therefore, that will be played out in their relationship. And that will also be played out in the relationship with their children because the children will sense the tension between mom and dad. And I remember reading a great book early on when I first you know, was, was married and I think my wife was pregnant. Someone gave me this book called Upbringing. By James Stenson. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but he was a, oh, it's a great book. It's so simple. The guy's like almost, I think he's Thomistic, but he was a, he was just a principal at a, at a high school. And he was, he, you know, he'd have his problem kids. And then he would have these kids that weren't problems. They were actually very successful, virtuous. And, 
and, and really scoring well in their grades and going off to great colleges. And he wanted to find out what's the secret ingredient here. So he started to interview the families. He started visiting them at their homes. And he found out that there was one key component. Well, actually two. The first was that when the marriage was solid, then the kids were solid. And But then he found out at the heart of the marriage was a dad who was striving to be godly. So he had a prayer life and he was he was humble. He was striving for humility. And he loved his wife and was willing to sacrifice for her in many ways, set the pace of self-giving love. And the children caught that. It wasn't like it was hey kids watch me sacrifice for mom you see i'm doing no it was you know it's it, you know it's not taught as much as it's just caught because dad is teaching all the time by his example and i think not to i'm on a roll here but <laughs> but saint joseph he totally lived this out i mean first the first thing he does is he enters the silence before god regarding his marriage his vocation and he prays and he prays in the silence. And that's where sonship is forged. That's where trusting God is forged. And a man who trusts God, he becomes trustworthy. A trusting son becomes a trustworthy father. And that's St. Joseph. And out of that silence, then he receives his vocation in prayer, in a sense. He already was, good. He was already married to Mary, the betrothal. But God confirms it and says, now go do it. Take Mary, your wife, into your home. And so he embraces woman, Mary. And he embraces her burdens as his own. And that's very important. And then on the other side, there's a actually embracing the woman as your own. There's also the denial of your own sexual burdens, your own prideful burdens, your own arrogance. And Joseph does all of that in spades. And he so he embraces silence, relationship with God. He embraces woman. And then from woman, from Mary, he embraces a child and becomes an icon of God the Father. And this is the rite of passage. You learn to love in your marriage, and then you will raise children for God. You will learn to love your children and take them as your spiritual children, adopt them as your spiritual children. And St. Joseph became the face of the Father that Jesus, you know, in a sense, wasn't seeing humanly, the voice of the Father that Jesus maybe wasn't hearing, the, the, and the touch of the Father that Jesus might not feel in his humanity. And that's what it is for each and every one of us. We're called to be that face, that voice, that touch of God the Father that our children cannot see, feel, or hear. But then from that, though, Joseph was given authority. And this is so powerful because Joseph was a protector. Joseph was a provider. But Joseph was also a, a priest in a, in a Jewish sense of his family. He blessed Jesus over and over because every father, Jewish father, blessed their children the day before the Sabbath, the night before the Sabbath. J Joseph was a priest. He assumed his authority, but he shared that authority with Mary. And I think that when we when we take on these four pillars of St. Joseph, that's when we do what James Stenson says in upbringing. That's when we begin to allow it to trickle down to our children. And then our children grow up to be virtuous and powerful and strong and holy. I'm going to link to that book, Upbringing, that you mentioned in episode notes for today's show because I think it's great. It sounds like great reading material. But in just following up on that priestly role, the priest is the one who sacrificed. He offers a sacrifice. St. Joseph filled this role. And all of us, as the church teaches, all of us are called to fill that role of priest, prophet, and king um, in, in our own way, that sick, sacrificial role, but especially men. And I just keep thinking when women are loved sacrificially, they 
are free to trust. They're free to follow. They're free to do the very things that God created them to do and that the woman, to be the women that God created us as women to be. And so I think that that's a part of this whole leadership conversation. If you find yourself uneasy with this topic of leadership, read the church's teaching in Ephesians chapter five, read the church's teaching in Cassie Canubi, look to the history of what the church has discussed. And it's really challenging us to step away from this crush the patriarchy mindset, to step away from this obliteration of the family because there is proper order to the family. And at the end of the day, Devin, I just think over and over again, for some reason in the corporate world, we can see that everyone has a part to play. Marketing does their marketing job to market a product and the people who produce the product focus on producing the product and don't do the job of marketing. Yet today, we can see that so easily in the corporate world, but within our own families, for some reason, we miss the fact that there's structure, there's hierarchy, and there's order in order for the unit of the family to function properly. And so I think that that's a key, I think, piece of reflection for us and looking to what the church is calling us and embracing that sense of leadership of the male role and this loving place that it allows us to be in as women. And I believe, you know, maybe I'll hear from a lot of people after this conversation, hey, that's what I want, I don't have, or that's what I strived for, but he didn't step up, or that's what I wanted, but, you you know, she really wanted to wear the pants. I get it. I hear it. we're human. Mm-hmm. We're fallen. But what I know, Devin, and I've seen this time and time again, God provides in abundance. And when we are living a rich sacramental life and we're abandoning this to him and we're continuing to call the other person back into their God-given ordered role, then God really does work in that when we're not grabbing and usurping other things, when we're not trying to take control, but we're really relying, okay, Lord, this is the plan you have. This is what I see outlined. And I will strive for it, even in the midst of my mistakes and my spouse's mistakes. And I'll keep trying even as it's difficult. God's mercy abounds and his miracles are incredible, Devin. Yeah, absolutely. And what we're doing here, I mean, I, I just encourage who, you know whoever's listening, and if this is applying to you, this, this topic, don't give up. Don't give up the fight because what you are doing, what we are doing in marriage and in family is at the heart of God's mission. It is everything. I mean, you think about this. Jesus's first miracle was at a wedding in, jo- mm-hmm. in John. Mm-hmm. His second miracle was restoring a father to his possessed son or a possessed son to his father mm-hmm. by healing the son. So it's marriage in the family. Love that. Love that. That's Devin Shaw from the Fathers of St. Joseph. You can find him at fathersofstjoseph.org where you can find his books and his awesome work there. That's fathersofstjoseph.org. Thanks for being with me today, Devin. You have a blessed rest of your Advent. Coming up next, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the chemical abortion case. What do you need to know? How can you talk about this topic? Lots to be said in just a moment here on Trending.
going on on the pro-life front, there is a historic case regarding abortion that we received news yesterday that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. That's the U.S. Supreme Court agreeing to hear the FDA chemical abortion case. You'll hear of it referred to as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration versus Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. This court case really goes back over 20 years, back to 2000. Now, what's unfortunate is that the Supreme Court actually refused to hear a second appeal that specifically addressed the initial approval of the chemical abortion pill in 2000. If you don't know, and I actually have a whole episode where I dive into some of the history of the FDA chemical abortion pill that we'll have to link to. Um, I've covered it pretty extensively, but we'll link back to that episode, I think back in, um, goodness, back in March, because it's been an ongoing case. But here's the deal. In 2000, the FDA approved mifepristone without covering their usual safety testing and regulatory protocols. They completely bypassed all regulations, bypassed all real clear trials and testing for the mifepristone part of the chemical abortion, which is the part that first kills the baby. Because the first pill, the mifepristone, kills the baby. The second pill, mesoprostol, essentially leads to women contracting and delivering a dead baby. It's how the pill works. Death and then expel the baby. Now, this is traumatic traumatic for women. I have worked firsthand with women for over 15 years now who have gone through with chemical abortion, and it has been heartbreaking to hear and talk to them. And if I can just share for a moment to put into context, if you have not been through a chemical abortion yourself, or if you don't know someone who has, I'll never forget one woman who I had worked with. It was my first closest contact with chemical abortion. I was about uh, 18 years old at the time. And this woman had reached out to me via my blog that I had had at the time. And she was having doubts about the chemical abortion pill process. She's just started. She'd just taken the first pill and she had learned about the abortion pill reversal protocol. And at the time I was working on the new incredible protocol where we could actually save babies through the abortion pill reversal program. And so the abortion pill reversal, by the way, if you're not aware of it, incredible, incredible work. You need to be aware of if you know someone who's pregnant, if you know someone who just in general having this information out there, it's abortionpillreversal.com. If you take the first abortion pill, mifepristone, and you change your mind before taking mesoprostol, you could actually save your baby. Praise God. It's incredible. But, but this woman was changing her mind. She'd been pressured by her boyfriend into taking the pill and she takes it. And she's having signs firing all directions. I, truly, God was sending her signs like, you don't have to do this. There are often their choices. So she starts Googling the abortion pill reversal. I'm like, is there anything that can be done? She finds out that indeed there can be. She contacts me. I work on getting her in contact with a physician. Long story short, unfortunately, because she ends up in the emergency room with profuse bleeding and the the ER doctors are radically pro-abortion and are not in favor of helping her to protect her baby's life or hers. They just send her home with massive blood clotting. And I'm talking about blood clots the size of baseballs and larger and with some low-dose ibuprofen, and that's it. And she ends up passing a baby and had her baby in her hands after a couple weeks of bleeding. 
And she had this little baby. She buried this baby in her grandmother's jewelry box. This was my first direct encounter with chemical abortion. It was devastating. I remember texting with her and talking with her on the phone for days, those couple weeks on end, and even longer after that as her body went through the horrific damage of chemical abortion. It is bloody. It is messy. It is damaging. And I'm giving you these scarring details because that's what a chemical abortion is. And back in 2000, the FDA bypassed all regulations, all safeguards, all testing and approved this. Why? Because in the name of abortion, with the Clinton administration asking them to do so, because this was kind of the parting work of the Clinton administration at that time, they put a chemical abortion pill on the market that they knew was damaging for women. Now, since then, part of the abortion strategy has been to deregulate as much as possible the chemical abortion so that in the event Roe versus Wade is overturned, that there would be access to chemical abortion. Also, because chemical abortion has less overhead. Fewer and fewer doctors want to perform abortions. It's considered the lowest level type of medical practice that you can engage in. And so here we are where the strategy of the pro-abortion movement has worked. Nearly, basically three out of five abortions today are chemical abortions. And it may even be higher than that because we don't have mandatory reporting numbers. But what we do know is that nearly three out of five abortions today are chemical abortions. These are horrific scars for women to carry. Now, what happened a few years ago during COVID is President Biden's administration used COVID somehow, how it's related, I don't know, as a reason to deregulate what's known as the REMS. Basically, these basic regulations, these basic medical safety protocols that were still put in place on the so-called FDA-approved mifepristone pill that could kill a baby. So several of those restrictions included basic things such as a doctor's visit before having this prescribed, an in-person visit. Uh, Basic exams, very baseline. What happened is a bunch of the regulations on the pill were thrown out the door. Used to be a woman could only have the pill up to seven weeks and it changed to 10. I've known, having worked sidewalk counseling in front of the abortion clinic, that I've seen countless women being prescribed this as late as 16 weeks in pregnancy. That is very late, and that actually becomes dangerous for a woman to have an abortion that late in her pregnancy. That baby is very much so developed. Everything full nervous system, brain, spinal cord, everything is there at that point in the pregnancy. The baby is totally formed. It just needs time to continue to get a little stronger and grow a little bigger before that baby can come outside out of that mama's womb. And so when I see this, these regulations that they have completely deregulated, it's alarming. So what happened is there's been a yo-yo in the courts from Texas to other states. There are multiple court cases occurring right now over the FDA's approval in 2000, over the chemical abortion, to the deregulation over the last few years. And basically what happened is at the end of the day, the latest court case of the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Fifth Circuit restored some basic medical safety for women who were being given the chemical abortion pill. So they were requiring that it couldn't be mail-order abortion and that it needed to be brought back down to seven weeks and not be given later. This has been a yo-yo over the last year or so, and it's startling to see that politics are essentially being played on the backs of women's bodies, on the lives of children, innocent babies. And what's sad is that 
across the country, we're seeing these chemical abortion pills being sent out and women are taking them later and later in their pregnancy. And we see this as being sent overseas into the United States. The FDA needs to be held accountable. And that's what's interesting in a lot of the legal proceedings. I was actually reading some of just the commentary from the various um, various attorneys that are diving into this topic, into this court case, the Alliance Defending Freedom, one of their senior counsels, Aaron Hawley, has specifically commented on just how even the court, every single court, she says, so far has agreed that the FDA acted unlawfully in removing common sense safeguards for women and authorizing dangerous mail-order abortions. And so she says that they're urging the Supreme Court to do the same by holding the FDA accountable and saying the FDA acted unlawfully and taking away all these safeguards. And by the way, dating all the way back to 2000. And so even though they refused the case regarding the 2000 approval of SCOTUS, there's no way they can hear this case on the FDA's approval and deregulation of the chemical abortion pill without also addressing the initial one. And so when we look at this case, it will address that. Ultimately, I do think it will touch on the 2000 approval and the fact that it was never studied and never safely put on the market. Um, I also am seeing a lot of research and conversations around the fact that the, the court is also going to have to address the fact that mifepristone is a massive endocrine disruptor. And if roughly three out of five women are having this type of abortion, we have to remember that these are minors as well who are taking these chemical abortion pills. A massive endocrine disruptor being given to an adolescent girl whose body is still developing, we don't even know the consequences of giving that to a woman whose body, a young girl whose body is still developing. It's also interesting because we knew all the way back before 2000 when this was approved to be put on the market that chemical abortion complications are much higher than surgical abortion complications. Now, we talked about the maternal mortality rate here in the United States just a couple of days ago with pro-life OBGYN and top senior researcher from the Lozier Institute, Dr. Ingrid Scott. You have to listen to that episode. We're going to go ahead and link that in the episode notes because the conversation surrounding maternal mortality rate is key. Because the reality is, is that the data is simply not being reported on how high our numbers actually are regarding the number of women who are literally dying from abortions. It's safer to go through pregnancy, carry your baby to term, then have an abortion. But that's not the narrative we have been hearing from years from the pro-abortion movement and from pro-abortion physicians. And so this case is actually going to have to address those specific statistics. And I pray that people continue to fight to set the narrative straight after the false data and the false gathering of information that has literally allowed to be to occur for 50 years, for five decades here in the United States. We have to pull from international data to actually set the record straight for how bad the true record keeping is of abortion in the United States. This case will also, before the Supreme Court, address those safety, basic safety protocols for women and at the end of the day, young girls who are taking abortion. And just to think about it, we're talking about basic safety protocols that include a doctor's visit before being given a massive endocrine disruptor for the body. We're talking about verifying a pregnancy before taking endocrine disruptors. And aren't we all about an organic, a go green culture today, yet we're perfectly fine with giving women pills when we're not positive that they're pregnant? Also, we need to be checking the location of the baby. Is the baby perhaps 
stuck in the fallopian tube, and that's an ectopic tubal pregnancy, which if a woman just has an abortion, a chemical abortion, that could actually leave that baby there in the fallopian tube, which could lead to death, not just for the baby, but also for the mom, if not detected or diagnosed. And we don't even know how many women are dying today due to ectopic tubal pregnancies that weren't diagnosed because women are taking chemical abortions that are not actually even treating a real serious medical diagnosis of an ectopic tubal pregnancy, which is life-threatening, an abortion that is, should I say, the child in the womb is not life-threatening. So here's a little bit of the inside scoop of what's happening behind the scenes. Planned Parenthood and the abortion movement has seen the writing on the wall with these court cases over the last year, and they're actually telling women not even to take mifepristone anymore, but they're telling them to take massive dosages of misoprostol, that second pill in the chemical abortion pill process. We know this because we're calling the abortion clinics. We're scheduling appointments to find out how they're handling their abortion protocols. And what's happening is that Women are delivering living babies who are being delivered so early. These babies can't survive at the outside of the womb very long. They're delivering living babies. They're not even killing these babies before delivering them. I mean, what is happening right now is atrocious. And I think that women deserve better than this false, false sense of so-called medicine. Planned Parenthood's talking points claim that these are bad court rulings and bad facts. And that's why the Supreme Court is even hearing this case. But what we're talking about isn't even about whether or not we believe abortion is okay, but about whether or not we believe that healthy, strong medicine is important for women to protect and save their lives. And that's what the Supreme Court case is about.